0: As we've been kind of making our way through the history of the church as it was founded and began to to grow from Jerusalem and expand its ways. We noticed last week as as Stephen uh, was stoned. we've talked about him for a, a few weeks. Um, stone meaning rocks killed him, not you know the marijuana use that we've got freedom to do now here in this state, but as as uh, he was being killed. The church was being persecuted. Uh, and we'll look at persecution at another point, but right now I, I want to kind of focus on a little bit different. Uh, it, people have created puzzles for for years, and, and puzzles are unique. And I, I have found a few puzzles in this passage of Scripture that I think some questions that we need to have some answered in in Acts chapter 8. But they've created crossword puzzles. I like to do crossword puzzles, and I like to do that Sudoku. That's, that's fun for me. I like the numbers and trying to guess those. Uh, but jigsaw puzzles, Rubik's Cubes, and I mean, there's scans of other kinds of puzzles out there. The better the puzzle, the more difficult it is to solve. And by that standard is one that they call one of the holy grails of puzzles, and, and it's called Solomon's Seal, Or sometimes it's also known as the the impossible Japanese puzzle. Uh, Matthew, do you have a picture of that? You've probably seen it. You have probably have tried it at some point uh, to be able to get this puzzle figured out. You've got this board with a few holes in it and string that's wrapped around it. And you've got two rings. And the idea is to get one ring on the other side. And I will tell you this. I spent hours trying to figure out how to do that puzzle. You probably have, but now you probably figured it out pretty easy. So, from my perspective, when I don't understand things, a lot of times I will Google it. Right? Well, Google on the video on on YouTube has this this video of a, a Japanese fellow who's had this puzzle for about ten years. As a matter of fact, this puzzle has been around for a few thousand years. All right. But he's had this puzzle for 10 years, and he's tried to figure it out, and could not figure this puzzle out. And so they got a puzzle master to come eventually and showed him how to do this simple puzzle. And once you figure out how easy it is and how simple it is, it's like, oh, that's a no-brainer. I should have been able to do that a long time ago. But puzzles aren't meant to be easy. They are difficult until you know the answer. And once the answer is there, it's like, "Oh, oh, why didn't I think of that? it's a puzzle. And so we've got these puzzles in life, and sometimes there are puzzles in Scripture, and, and unless you know the answer to it, it seems impossible to fix it. And There's only one way to solve the puzzle, and you need to know the secret in order to solve it. Now, in our Scripture, there are Three puzzles that I want us to look at. Three questions that arise in our passage today. and They're riddles, in essence, that, that, that the text is almost impossible to figure out unless you understand what lies behind them. So if you understand the secret of it, then you get it. And it makes so much more sense. So in our passage of Scripture here today, we're going to be introduced to another individual. We've already heard his name once. His name is Philip. And we saw him back in Acts chapter 6 in passing. And then all of a sudden, Stephen kind of took a little bit of the forefront. And then he was killed. Now we've got this second individual who comes out in this story. And so before we get into the story, so if the early church had been in existence now for probably about a year. All right? It's been about a year since Jesus died. And things are going on really good. And the church is growing by thousands. I mean, on the first day in Pentecost, 3,000 men were baptized, let alone the women and children. And then it seemed like on a daily basis, more and more people were coming to Christ and things were going great. And the church is growing by thousands and thousands. And people are are sticking around Jerusalem because they don't want to leave the church because of the, the teaching that they're getting from the apostles and understanding what had transpired there just months before with Jesus. And, and so the church is growing. And everything seems to be going extremely well, but then they meet up with some serious opposition. And this godly man by the name of Stephen is preaching before the Sanhedrin a message that is so powerful and so in your face and stepping on their toes that they get very upset with him and drag him out and they kill him because they believe that what he is teaching is totally against God and against the way that God wants them to worship and the things. And so we have this stoning of Stephen, and persecution now breaks out against the church. And I have to realize that persecution of the church, the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees were almost afraid to do anything to the church because of the crowd. But with Stephen now, the crowd turned on him. As soon as they see that the crowd is now willing to go against the church, the Sanhedrin is emboldened to go after them. And a man by the name of Saul, who stood there holding the cloaks of the fellows who were killing Stephen, he is strengthened in his own determination to destroy the church, and he goes from house to house, dragging people out of their homes and and, and having them beat and thrown in prison, and ultimately sometimes killed. And Saul is becoming a huge persecutor of the church. And that's what we meet here at the very beginning of this passage of Scripture. So we meet this young man by the name of Saul. Later we find out his name is changed to Paul because he has changed himself. And he is threatening the church. And in Acts chapter 8, verses 1, 2, and 3, Luke, the author, is telling us this. He says, Saul was in hearty agreement. "...with putting him to death." That's Stephen. "...And on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles." Matthew, Thomas, Philip, uh, Bartholomew, James, John, Peter, they all stayed in Jerusalem." The rest of the church, thousands of them, they start running. They run for the hills. They run for the valleys. They get anywhere they can to get away from the persecution. They're heading back home. Or they're leaving home. Except the apostles. Now in verse 2 it says, Some devout men, they buried Stephen and made loud lamentations over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging all... Men and women, he would put them in prison. Now, facing prison and death, the, the Christians they 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 fled. They they didn't want to get caught. They didn't want to be dragged out. They didn't want to to have to leave their families as a result of their faith. And so they they're all just just taking off. And one of these men who ran away was this deacon, this godly man that spoke about in Acts chapter six, a man by the name of Philip. And he flees Jerusalem and he ends up in Samaria. Where no devout Jew would actually go, probably, and so Philip goes to Samaria, and that's what we see here he 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 heads up to Samaria, a little bit north of Jerusalem, and he begins preaching about Jesus there, and his preaching is so powerful and convicting. Listen what it says in Acts chapter six, and then down in verse twelve and thirteen it says the crowds." with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. Verse 12, it says, When they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, both men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly Amazed. Now shortly after this, in verses 15, 16, and 17, the apostles in Jerusalem heard about what's going on with Philip in Samaria. And so they send John and Peter up there to go check things out. And so here in verse 15 it says, They came down and they prayed for them, and they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them, and they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they, which is Peter and John, began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now that's essentially the story of what's taking place here. They're on the other side of the issue to consider. They basically sums up what we've read here in this passage Scripture. These three puzzles are these. The first one is this. What right, number one, does Philip have to preach? he's left he's gone up there who gives him authority to preach i mean what what how does he deserve to preach he, he's he, he's a deacon he's not an elder he's, he's 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 not a preacher or minister he's not been ordained in the ministry he didn't even go to bible college let alone any of this and so he, he he's not been ordained for that so what's he doing that's the first question second puzzle might be this why has not the holy spirit come upon these new believers why hasn't he? I mean, I thought what happened when you became a Christian, when you put your faith in Jesus and, and you confessed your sins and you believed in him and you were baptized in him. The, the, do you not receive the Spirit? I mean, is that what it is? I mean, I thought the Scriptures taught that. It does. But this time it seems that they needed the apostles to come lay their hands on them to have the Spirit come upon them. So, we'll kind of look at that puzzle. The third one is this: Why couldn't Philip just lay his hands on them? Why does it have to be that Peter and John have to come up here and do this? All right? Why do he have to wait on them? I mean, it would seem that philip if he's he's leading them to Christ and they're being baptized and they're becoming followers of Jesus, it would seem that he would be qualified to do something like this. I mean, we're told that he's a man filled with the Holy Spirit himself in Acts chapter six. And he had wisdom, and he was obviously able to do all these cool miracles to get the attention of the people so that they come to to understand that God was behind all this. So why can't he do that? So that's the third thing we need to answer. So let's go back to the first question. The first puzzle is this. Why does Philip have the right to preach? What authority does he have? Since he's not an apostle, he's not a minister, and he's he's not an elder, he's not a deacon, he's not been to Bible college, he's not been ordained to any of this, and there are a lot of churches who probably would never give him an opportunity to stand within their pulpits and, and speak to people, since he doesn't fill any of those qualifications. But yet, all those things are very common back in that day. You didn't have Bible colleges to go to. a lot of places didn't have elders, they didn't have deacons, they didn't have preachers. So who was the one that went and did it? It was anybody who was a Christian at that point. In Acts chapter 4 verse 7 it says that a Sanhedrin, they confronted Peter and John who were arrested for preaching. And the first question the Sanhedrin asked them was this, By what power or in what name have you done this? In other words, who gives you the right to preach? That's what they want to know. Now we know what Peter and John's answer was. Jesus. (laughs) He gives us the right to preach. And things really haven't changed in over 2,000 years. Jesus is the one who gives you the right and the authority to preach. Not just the deacons or the elders or the preachers or those who have gone to Bible college or seminary or been ordained. He gives each one of us the opportunity and the ability and the authority to tell the good news and the gospel of Jesus to anybody who will listen. Now, even if you don't have that diploma on your wall, a lot of times churches won't give you that opportunity. First time I preached was in my home church when I was 12 years old. I hadn't even gone to Bible college or seminary yet. I had no BA, no BA in ministry. I had nothing. I, I had not studied the Greek or the Hebrew. I just, all I had was the Bible and a youth minister who encouraged me. And I got up and I preached. And I had a twenty-minute sermon. And I said the word "okay" ninety-five times in that sermon. My sister counted. Okay. So that's how I know. It, it, it's, it's not about that. But it's not quite how things work with God. When Paul wrote the church of Corinth, he said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 1 through 5. He says, And when I came to you, brethren, I didn't come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. In other words, what Paul is saying there to the church at Corinth is, is I'm not here to dazzle you with a bunch of fancy speech. I'm not here to impress you. I'm here to get you to see Jesus and Him crucified because that's what's going to bring you your salvation. For most people in our brotherhood of churches, Phillips being a preacher really isn't a puzzle at all. We'd be very comfortable to have him stand up and preach at most of our churches at all. We figure that if a guy loves Jesus, and if he knows the Bible, and if they're not into any kind of heresy, or or false doctrines, then they're able to speak a while. And so we give people an opportunity I like to have missionaries come in, and we do that with our meals with a mission, and, and, and people have an opportunity if they're going to go to, to Cambodia, or if they're going to go to the Congo, or if they're going to go to some other place and, and win people for Christ, why can they not have an opportunity to stand here? They may not have a degree. They may be just somebody who was raised in a church and got called them to go into missions, and now they're heading out. But He gives us these opportunities. So the first puzzle is this: who has the right to preach? It's anybody that has been called on by the name of the Lord for their own personal salvation. Any man or woman who loves Jesus has the opportunity to share that gospel message with anybody else. Plain and simple. Now the second puzzle is this. Why hasn't the Holy Spirit fallen upon these new believers? I mean, that's something as I'm reading that passage, it's like, okay, they've become Christians, but what, they don't have the Spirit? I thought that when you became a Christian, you had the Spirit. I mean, is that not a sign and a symbol of of your salvation? I mean, what's going on here? Why, Why don't they have the Spirit on them? Why has the Spirit not, in essence, fallen upon them? Listen to what it says in 14 through 17. When the apostles in Jerusalem had heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen upon any of them, and they had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. They had begun laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter, in his message, and his sermon, he, he said to the people there that day, he said, Repent and be baptized. Repent, each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They believed, they were baptized. And according to Acts 2.38, when they did that, they should have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. But now, let's kind of digress for just a moment. Can you be saved without the Holy Spirit? That's a question looking at this passage of Scripture, I'm I'm, I'm wondering, can you be saved without the Holy Spirit? So let's take a poll. How many of you think you can be saved without the Holy Spirit? Oh, you don't agree with that, do you? Well, rightly so, you should not agree with that, because the Bible specifically tells us that. Listen to what it says in Romans 8 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, of Christ, he does not belong to him. So, in other words, you cannot be a Christian without God's Spirit. So this is kind of puzzling. If Philip is leading them to Christ and he's baptizing them in the name of Jesus, should they not have had the Spirit? Well, the Bible teaches that we can't be saved without it. And so some people, I think, when they read this story in Acts chapter 8, in our English understanding we will confidently say that no, the Christians are not, the Samaritans are not fully Christians yet because they had not received, the Spirit had not fallen upon them. But that's probably lazy theology. At least from my point of view. Because you have to look at other scriptures as well and understand that that cannot actually be what it's saying because it has to fit in with the whole of other things. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, it says this, "...in Him you also, after listening to the message of of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who has given us a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory." So Ephesians is teaching us that our believing and our faith in Jesus gets us sealed with the Holy Spirit, and God's Holy Spirit is in a guarantee of our salvation. So our faith connects us with the Spirit from Ephesians. When the Samaritans believed in Jesus, of course they did, because it shows us that as a response of their faith and their belief, they were baptized into his name. So if our faith seals us with the Spirit and our baptism indwells us with the Spirit, then something different has got to be going on here. So what is it? Why is it they have to come and lay their hands on them by Peter and John? Now before we get too deep into this, this, this comes out of as well from Hebrews chapter. Uh, chapter 6. and It's talking about the elementary truths of of our salvation of the faith. And it says the elementary things of a faith that we should know, just simple, are, are things like faith and baptism and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead. Those are simple things. And yet sometimes I think we haven't gotten into the point of understanding what is this big deal about laying on of hands? And here we see this example. And so We're going to be taught here why they have to come in and lay their hands on them. I want to stress that nowhere, again, nowhere, 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 nowhere in Scripture does it say that that when somebody lays their hands on somebody else, they... Receive the Spirit of God and their salvation is secure. So I can walk around and pray for people and lay my hands on them and they're saved. Scripture doesn't say that. All right. It doesn't give me that indication. And never in the Bible are we ever going to see that the salvation comes through that. It's just not biblical. But what we do see here in Scripture is that the laying of the hands accomplishes three things. So if you do a study of laying on of hands, you'll see three things are taking place at that point. Number one is ordination. And in Acts 13.3, we see that happen. It says, Then when they, the leaders of the church at Antioch, had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, who, Paul and Barnabas, they sent them away to the mission field. All right? So the laying on of hands by the leadership of the church of Antioch essentially said that Paul and Barnabas were trusted by them and were going with their authority and with the confidence that they were endorsing their ministry of where they were going to head and do some things. And so they laid their hands on them and they, they ordained them to go and to take care of things in this ministry. The second aspect of laying on hands we see is the, is the idea of healing. And we see that in Acts chapter 9, verses 10-12. through 12. There was a disciple in Damascus. By the name of Ananias, it says. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he, Saul, has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Alright? So the laying all the hands on that part of Scripture was going to bring healing to Saul's eyes, who was blind. And God has given Saul this vision that Ananias is going to come to you, he's going to lay his hands on you, he's going to pray for you, and you're going to receive your sight again. And you go on and read a little bit further there in Acts chapter 9, and that's exactly what takes place. The third thing of laying on hands is this it imparts the Greek word charismata. We get our word charismatic, charisma, from this passage of Scripture here. It's, it's a root word that we get the word charismatic from, charisma. All right? and, and that's what we see here happening in, in Acts chapter 8. Charismata is a Greek word that's described gifts that are given by the Holy Spirit. These are gifts that the Holy Spirit, He puts upon you. All right? So there's a difference here, and so you'll find that word in places like 1 Corinthians chapter twelve, where it talks about all the different kinds of gifts. You'll find that in Romans chapter twelve, when it talks about the gifts that people are receiving by the Holy Spirit, and they are gifts from Him. All right, so there's a difference. Now, charismata is an interesting word. Charis, the first part of that word, means grace. All right, it's a word that's often used in Scripture to refer to the Spirit's work in our lives. The the ma Charisma singular all right, or mata, which is plural, all right, so it has this plural ending on it that means it is therefore the results of the gift of the spirit, the grace of the spirit, so charismata means the result of the grace that is in us, so charismata. Charismata were gifts that were a result of the Spirit's work on the believers' lives. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, it tells us that when we repent of our sins and we're baptized into the name of Jesus, we receive the gift of, of the Holy Spirit. But charismata are gifts by the Holy Spirit. And they only came with the laying on of hands. So you receive the gift of the Spirit by becoming a Christian, by putting your faith in Him and being baptized, and then you are filled with the Spirit. But the gifts that are by the Spirit, those are things that He does, not just His presence, but the way He impacts us with the ability to do things. So, when we look at verse 8, Verse 16 of chapter 8, For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply, or as some translations say, only been baptized into the name name of Jesus. All right? It's not that the baptism had no value. But when we read that in our own English translations, we don't quite cover things over in translation. We lose the tense. All right? So I'm going to give you a little bit of a Greek study here. Uh, the Greek language has its own little quirks and stuff about it. Uh, and, and they're not understand, understood sometimes in our modern-day culture of America uh, to, to, because they come in tense. My Greek professor, Albert McGee, um, he, he really emphasized a few things, so I'll kind of share with you. There are five tenses in the Greek language, all right? So if you're going to take your notes, here's some good notes for you. However, I've been told that there are probably 12 to 16 tenses in the English language. And one one of my classmates said he'd heard there were 30. So you get all these different tenses of language, uh, but in the Greek it has five. And so I'm going to lay these out for you, kind of explain them in just a simple way. All right, there is the present, the past, and the future tense. Then there is also the aorist and the perfect Okay, so five tenses. And Albert kind of put it out this way for us when we're talking, all right? If, if, if we were look at the present tense, let me kind of share it with you this way. All right, present tense would say, I'm watching John as he paints his house. All right, present. I'm watching John as he's painting his house. I'm right there in the present. All right, past tense would be seeing the painting as a continuous action. So, it would be like, I am remembering John as he was painting his house. I am remembering John as he was painting his house. So he did it in the past, but it's, it's continued on to now, because I'm remembering it now, and so it's fresh in my mind. Though it's not present, it brings it in. The future tense is this. I'm visualizing what John will be doing as he will be painting his house. So I'm thinking about it right now, I'm understanding, I'm putting it forward and so I'm visualizing in my own mind what it's going to be like as John is painting his house. All right? So I'm seeing it. So that's future tense. Now, by contrast, the aorist tense is this. An aorist tense is a completed act. So I might say John has painted his house and he's washed his brushes and he's put everything away. All right, it's it's not that I'm remembering it, but John John did this. He's done, he's completed, and it's finished. There's no continuation to it. It's aorist. It's done in the past, it's over. Now the present or the, the, the perfect tense is this. And this is the one that is used here in Acts chapter 8, verse 16. Alright? The perf when it talks about baptism. The perfect tense can be described as a completed act following the specific results. So the perfect tense can be described this way. John has completed his act of painting his house. He's put everything away, and now passerbys are, are, are complimenting him on how great of a job he has done. As a matter of fact, his home is now featured in Home and Gardens magazine, Better Home and Gardens, and it's a perfect tense, so it's completed act followed by results. Right? Something has been done. Now as a result of that, things are happening that continue to happen because of the thing that has been done. That's the, that is the perfect tense. And that is the tense that is used here on the term baptized in Acts chapter 8, verse 16. So it's not that they were baptized. No. They were baptized, and as a result of their baptism, something has been completed, and as a result of that completion, now things have changed in his life, and people are recognizing things that are a lot different as a result of his baptism. And it goes on that way. So here we have that. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter tells us that repent and each one of you will be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this happens and as a result of all that, things continue to go and change in your life. So now apparently at least some of the gifts were given by the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands, which is why Peter and John have to come here. No one else could do that but the apostles. And we see that within Scripture over and over and over again, that it is only the apostles who have this ability to lay their hands on somebody and things change and they receive gifts by the Spirit of God through them rather than just receiving the gift of the Spirit. It mentions at the end of our little passage here a man by the name of Simon. Just a kind of little note about Simon. Simon was a magician, all right? And he had crowds of people who followed him because of his magic tricks. But Simon becomes a Christian, and he himself is baptized, and he has discovered that this is awesome. And and he's noticing that Philip has got something unique about him that nobody else has. And so he, he says he follows Philip wherever he goes, and he's amazed at the signs and wonders that Philip has the ability to do when he, he's leading people and he's teaching them about Jesus and he's got these things that are going on. He's like, this is great. And then he sees that when Peter and John come and they lay their hands on the people and now the people can do these things. Simon says, I like that magic trick. Can I buy it? Can I give you some money so I can do that? So I can lay my hands on people and they can have, that would be cool. Not just me doing the magic trick, but all of a sudden I can do something to them and then they do it and they go, whoa, how did that happen? Peter and John don't like that. And they confront him over that sinful thought. But see, it was recognized here that it is just Peter and John because they are apostles. They had been with Jesus and as a result of being with Jesus, he had empowered them with ability to do this and nobody else. And that's why it says that they went down and they prayed for them and they laid their hands on him so they might receive this Holy Spirit. Now the third puzzle is this. Why couldn't Philip lay his hands on these peoples? Why was it that only apostles can do that? The Bible doesn't say. It, it doesn't say. It just demonstrates that it's only these 12 men, and, and including since, you know, uh, well, 13 men now, because Paul eventually has that ability to do that. But it's only people who have been designated by Jesus as his apostles. And, and and I guess I could base my answer on this. I mean, the New Testament has has been has, has not been written yet. When Peter and John and and James and 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 Matthew and Bartholomew and Thomas, when they're when they're out taking the gospel message and they're laying their hands on people, the, the New Testament has not yet been written. All right, they are the authority of Jesus within this world at that time. But finally, once the book has been closed. And John has passed away. Now we have a completion of the Bible itself. We no longer need the authority through a man such as Peter or John because we have the authority of the Word of God itself, which the Bible says is alive and active. And it gives us an understanding of what His will is and what His desire is for us. So we don't need those. I mean, that would be my biggest guess. But by definition, here we have an apostle had to be somebody who was with Jesus from the time of his baptism to the time of his resurrection. Sometimes we get this image that that, that Jesus only had 12 guys following him around. No, he had hundreds. It was a caravan of people moving with him. Sometimes it was thousands. Thousands. And so, when Jesus had died and he had gone up into heaven, the disciples started counting and they realized there's only 11 of us. We need to appoint somebody else. So they decided, what is necessary for somebody to become one of us? Listen to what it says in chapter 1 of Acts. Therefore, it's necessary that the men... "...who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us. One of these must become a witness with us in his resurrection." And so they were looking around at the followers. At that point, there were still 120 in the upper room as they were praying and waiting for the Spirit to come upon them. And it's like, okay, we've got to get somebody. So out of all of us that are here still, who has experienced from the time that John baptized him to the time we watched him ascend into heaven... Well, it fell on two guys. And then they cast lots and they chose Matthias. So he became an apostle. But Jesus also chose this rebel rouser Saul and gives him that vision that Ananias is going to come and you're going to recover your blindness to sight. And then you're going to go out and you're going to preach and you're going to be an apostle for me. So we we understand that it's got to be one of these apostles, and they were continually the, the the church was continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. It tells us that in Acts chapter two, verse forty-two, that that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Why would they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching? Because they didn't have the Bible yet, and the only thing they knew about what Jesus wanted was what these guys would say. And so they spent time listening to them over and over again to try and understand what Jesus wanted from them in life. And so to them, it was the New Testament in the flesh through the apostles. And to us now, as the apostles have died, it is the New Testament in his word that gives us the teachings that we need to know. So here we've got Philip starting a new church up in Samaria as a mission. And Peter and John are sent down there because after he's baptized them, they're not able to do things that are gifted by the Spirit, but it doesn't mean they don't have the Spirit. They're just not displaying gifts of the Spirit that are needed at that point to bring people to Christ. And so they go and they lay their hands on them, and they receive these gifts, these special gifts from the Holy Spirit. Now, in closing, just kind of wrap this all up. The purpose, I think, of puzzles and puzzling questions is not only to entertain us, but to challenge us. To make us to go dig deeper into things, into the Scripture, or to to work our brain to try and figure things out. How can this be uh, fixed and completed? They aren't intended to be easy or, or simple. In the same way, the Bible is filled with numerous puzzles that sometimes when you read it, you go, what? How come? Who? How? Why? And we start to ask these questions. And those biblical puzzles are intended to make us dig deeper and understand more about God. And it's very easy to understand the basics of things on how to become a Christian and to live a life that, that pleases Him. But God has inserted occasional puzzles in our lives and in His Scripture to challenge us to dig deeper and to intrigue us to finding a little bit more who He is. So this morning we've kind of looked at three different questions that are puzzling to me. And in Acts chapter 8, we see the church continuing to grow, even in the midst of the persecution and the struggles that they're having to face. But the biggest puzzle of all is is not what is presented there. There's a story about a Sunday school uh, that one of the class members was was, uh, um, confused about something. And so he asked his teacher he says I just can't understand how God can love and forgive some people. And we could probably think of people that we would wonder that how can God forgive that person for all the the horrendous things that they have done. And yet God because we would There's something that amazes me even more than that. There are times I can't understand how God could love and forgive me. And that amazed him. And then he mentioned to him a song. A song that was a gentleman had himself wondered why and how could God love and forgive him because of all the things that he had done. And he wrote a song called Amazing Grace. And listen to the very first stanza of it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. When we look at ourselves, sometimes we don't see a pretty picture. And it's puzzling to us why God would love us. And yet He does. And it's because of that amazing grace and the gifts that come through that grace that empower us to make a difference in our world so that people can come to Jesus. We're going to have our invitation for you. And I challenge you. To dig deeper into the Scripture, to ask the questions, to search out things. And I think you'll find out that it's only in Jesus that we have the answers. It's in Him that we can find true forgiveness and grace. Let's stand together.